A second Norfolk Southern freight train has derailed in Ohio, about 200 miles from the East Palestine derailment that happened last month. It's Monday, March 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden marked the 58th anniversary of the Bloody Sunday March in Selma, Alabama by criticizing attacks on voting rights laws. New law here in Alabama, among other things, enacted a new congressional map that discriminated against black voters. Also this hour, the new plan to resolve long-running historical disputes between Japan and South Korea, plus using the science behind the COVID vaccine to fight tuberculosis, and we look at the effectiveness of TikTok's new rules limiting screen time for kids. In sports, Celtics lose in double overtime, cloudy today in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says this week he will unveil his budget proposal to Congress. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this comes in the midst of an ongoing argument over whether to increase the federal government's borrowing authority, known as the debt ceiling. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the president's upcoming budget plan will advance many items on the administration's agenda for the next two years. The budget will show how the president plans to invest in America, continue to lower costs for families, protect and strengthen Social Security and Medicare, reduce the deficit, and so much more. The release of Biden's budget proposal comes amid a stalemate over the terms for raising the nation's debt ceiling. Some Republicans are demanding concessions in exchange for lifting the borrowing limit, including major cuts in government spending. But the White House has refused to negotiate, calling on Republicans to instead release their own budget plan. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Officials from the National Transportation Safety Board will be at the site of a new freight train derailment in central Ohio. On Saturday, 28 cars of a Norfolk Southern train left the tracks. Springfield, Ohio Fire and Rescue Division Assistant Chief Matt Smith says there was no hazardous spill. They did a recon of the site, found nothing that spilled onto the ground and nothing um, very minimal uh, material on the actual cars themselves that actually dried very quickly. Norfolk Southern General Manager Craig Barner says the railroad wants to reassure residents. Safety is our number one priority. And as I stated earlier, our, our derailments, our mainline derailments are on the, on the decline. But this is Norfolk Southern's second derailment in Ohio in little more than a month. And residents near the first accident in East Palestine are continuing to demand more information about the toxic chemicals released into the air. Parts of California's central and eastern mountains are under another winter weather warning. Another foot or two of snow could fall in the Sierra Nevadas. The region's gotten so much snow, there's an avalanche warning for backcountry areas. Iran's supreme leader says the poisoning of Iranian schoolgirls is an unforgivable crime and the perpetrators should be severely punished. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei was quoted by Iran's state news agency. Iranian state media carried the comments by Khamenei, which came after Iran's interior minister said more than 50 schools had seen cases of alleged poisonings. No deaths have been reported. Interior Minister Ahmad Vahidi said over the weekend that, quote, suspicious samples had been found, which are currently being assessed at laboratories of the Ministry of Health. He said the first incident occurred in the city of Qum more than three months ago. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi told a cabinet meeting Sunday that the reported poisonings are, quote, the new plot of the enemy, calling them, quote, an inhumane crime. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. 
This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The State Department of Public Health plans to close its 11 free COVID testing sites at the end of this month. That's because the demand for tests has plummeted. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports this marks a new phase of the pandemic. Last summer, the state-funded sites performed 12,000 COVID tests a week. Now it's less than 1,000 tests per week. Wastewater data also show coronavirus levels dropping from the uptick that followed the winter holidays. This is all encouraging. Dr. Sabrina Asumu is an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center. It's reasonable to start peeling off some of those intensive measures that we had in place so that we can kind of ramp them up again if we need to. COVID tests are still available at doctor's offices, pharmacies, urgent care centers, and other sites. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Theal-McCluskey. The Massachusetts Convention Center Authority is reviewing complaints of discrimination by black employees, guests, and vendors. In the past month, four black employees filed formal complaints with the state attorney general's office regarding the discrimination. A white employee says he was fired after filing a separate complaint. He claims the authority heightened security at black-sponsored events. Unions at UMass Amherst are protesting a plan by the university to privatize the jobs of more than 100 employees who work in fundraising. That would cost them union benefits, including future contributions to state pensions. Brad Turner is a union leader. This is the flagship campus of the University of Massachusetts system. Our workers took these jobs because they were state positions. They wanted the benefits associated with state positions and unions. The UMass administration calls the move necessary to comply with state law. Boats won't be able to pass through the Cape Cod Canal this morning. It closed yesterday after three right whales were spotted there. Right whales are endangered and protected. Scientists estimate there are only 340 left in the world. Coast officials haven't said when the canal will reopen. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Babson Arts with The Forgotten Kingdom from the Guy Mendelo Ensemble, a diverse story told with art, poetry, and music, world premiere March 23rd, babsonarts.org. The Celtics lost to the New York Knicks in double overtime last night. The final at the Garden was 131-129. to The Seas will visit the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. The UMass Amherst women's basketball team fell short in its attempt to repeat as Atlantic 10 champion. The Minute women lost to St. Louis in overtime. The final was 91 to 85. Increasing clouds today. Temperatures will get into the mid-40s. Cloudy overnight. It'll be in the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for snow. Mid-30s. It should stay dry the rest of the week. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. In China, the annual session of parliament, the National People's Congress, began over the weekend. It's a meeting of everybody who's anybody in the Communist Party and the government. 
In a sense, only one person is anybody, Xi Jinping, the longtime leader of both party and state. As he prepares for a third term, his country faces the damage of the pandemic and the strain of competition with the United States. He's expected to reshuffle some personnel. NPR's John Ruich joins us from Beijing. He's following the Congress. John, what's going to happen there this week? Well, the big thing is going to be that personnel uh, reshuffle, those personnel changes in government. They're going to be sweeping, and this is being seen, uh, as Steve mentioned, as sort of a continuation of Xi Jinping's efforts to consolidate power. You know, Xi Jinping himself will get a third term as president. That hasn't happened in many, many years. Uh, there will be a new premier who's the number two in the government, uh, new vice premiers who can play a key role in policymaking and administration, new cabinet from the defense minister, central banker on down. The reshuffle brings a period of a bit of uncertainty, though. You know, some of the people who are leaving have a lot of experience and are arguably market-oriented. The new guys, uh, some of the key ones at the top especially, uh, have limited experience on the national level. And by and large, they're Xi Jinping's allies and are believed to have gotten where they are because of that. Uh, they face huge challenges. And uh, Willie Lam, who's an expert in Chinese politics at the Jamestown Foundation, is not optimistic about what Xi Jinping is doing here. He is much more interested in promoting people who he can trust, who, who are loyal to himself, rather than people who are experts in finance or in, in other areas of administration. One more quick thing to add is that the parliament is going to pass a plan to reform and restructure state institutions. The details haven't been made public. There's speculation that it'll, it will mean more centralized regulation of finance, security agencies, technology. And again, analysts see this as just more, uh, you know, consolidation of power in the hands of Xi Jinping and the party. Yeah, and the challenges that China faces, I mean, coming out of zero COVID, the economy is uh, sluggish right now, and there's been a, a lot of pushback on government policies. Correct. You know, one thing this parliament does is sets targets for the coming year, and the outgoing premier announced the new GDP target for this year uh, on Sunday. The, the target is around 5%. That's the lowest it's been in years. And it comes after China, you know, recorded 3% growth last year, which was among its lowest in a half a century. Their knock-on effects of the economic problems brought on by those zero COVID policies, local government finances are strained, and that's created some friction and even sparked recent protests, like in cities like Wuhan and Dalian, over government health care coverage, things like that. We talked with a retired guy here on the streets of Beijing. His surname is Zhang. And like a lot of people in China, when he was speaking frankly about policies, he didn't want us to use his full name. He told us he's watching the Congress pretty closely. His main concerns are those sort of bread and butter issues like health care, his pension. He's disillusioned, though. He thinks that the leadership is increasingly out of touch. They don't get what it's like for normal people anymore. And he says there's just no easy way for people to make their concerns heard. And John, what about the friction China's been having with uh, the U.S. and other Western countries? Will that come up? It will. It hasn't come up publicly yet. The foreign minister is due to hold a press conference tomorrow, I believe. And in a week, you know, the new premier will meet the press. Xi Jinping himself will give a speech. So we'll hear about it. I wouldn't expect any major policy changes or major shifts in the direction of China's stance toward the U.S. or Ukraine. That's NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. John, thanks. You bet, eh? Here in the United States, two major political gatherings ended over the weekend. The differences between them showed the Republican Party's competing identities. On the one side, former President Trump headlined the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. On the other, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis attended the Club for Growth's private donor retreat. 
We're joined now by a longtime friend of the show, Jonah Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. Jonah, welcome back. Always great to be here. Is there a substantive difference, not style, but substance between the Trump approach to government and the DeSantis approach? I think there's an enormous difference between the two guys, and it could be probably boiled down to DeSantis does his homework and Donald Trump improvs everything. Um, We saw the glandular style of Trump's presidency where he just sort of governed by tweet to the extent he governed at all. Ron DeSantis actually is a bit of a wonk. And I think that the real Ron DeSantis is more the guy who got that bridge open after the hurricane in three days than a lot of the sort of very online populist stuff that you see from him, which he it, he does because that's what the base of the party wants and he does his homework how to give it to them. But I, I, I think it's it's you can call it cynical or you can call it smart politics. Uh, DeSantis is a much more deliberate, traditional, conservative, trying to deal with the times he's in, and Trump just does everything by touch and feel. You just used the word traditional. Let's talk about that. My impression from a distance is that DeSantis could be described as a traditionalist who is willing to use the government, use government power to enforce his ideas about traditionalism. I think that's that's certainly true you know, given some of the controversies that are coming out of Florida. Um, and uh, and I think it's sort of what the Republican Party wants. Um, I think there's the general sentiment among uh, sort of smart people in the Republican Party and also a lot of sort of boobs in the Republican Party that it's a fool's game to sort of just have a government that's neutral because they believe the left is never neutral. So you have to sort of fight fire with fire the state's going to impose its values one way or the other, so the right says let's at least impose ours. That's the crux of a major argument on the right these days. And that we, we should just underline, there was this other, I guess there still is in some quarters, this other idea of government among conservatives, that there should be small government that shouldn't do very much except the most essential things, that taxes should be low, that regulations should be limited, that corporations should not be told what to do. We now have Republicans thinking that corporations, in fact, should be told what to do uh, if their politics differ from the person in power. Yeah, look, I mean, industrial policy, buy America, these kinds of ideas are essentially bipartisan now. Everybody wants to pick winners and losers. It's just who one party has one set of winners and the other party has another set of winners and vice versa on the losers. And I'm like one of those Japanese soldiers still fighting World War II in 48 or 49 because (laughs) I'm part of this remnant that actually wants Reaganite limited government and whatnot. Um, we might have a comeback at some point, but right now it's still a uphill slog. What do you think about when you hear Republicans also taking up the idea of being the working class party? Uh, I understand they have a lot of working class voters, but can they be the working class party and pick up the old working class rhetoric of the left? Uh, they're certainly trying. You know, uh, Marco Rubio and a bunch of people have been trying to do this. Josh Hawley has been trying to do this. Um, the part of the problem is we're just seeing a, a, a giant transition. The FDR coalition that sustained the Democratic Party for a very long time is in some ways up for grabs, and Republicans are, are picking different pieces off, off that carcass. Um, the, the problem is, is that what that constituency wants doesn't really jibe with traditional conservative notions in a lot of ways. And uh, it's a, there's a lot of uh, ferment right now, and we saw coming out of CPAC, that you know the populist wing and the sort of traditional Reaganite wing, uh, they basically cannot uh, lo- they cannot long endure in the same party is what I would argue. 
Well, we'll continue listening for your commentary as that debate evolves. Jonah, thanks very much for dropping by. Thank you. Jonah Goldberg, among other things, is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. Images of white officers beating civil rights protesters on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, was a turning point in the fight for voting rights 58 years ago. The day became known as Bloody Sunday. And yesterday, President Biden joined the remembrance events in his first visit to Selma as president. NPR's Deepa Shivaram traveled with Biden and brings us this report. President Biden stood before a crowd of thousands at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge to deliver a message. Voting rights in the U.S. are still under attack. Conservative Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years. Since the 2020 election, a wave of states and dozens, dozens of anti-voting laws fueled by the big lie and the election deniers now elected to office. Biden, who came into office just weeks after the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, has made protecting democracy a cornerstone of his agenda. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote, the right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. The commitment to protecting and expanding voting rights is one Biden made when he ran for president in 2020. But his proposals didn't pass in Congress, even when Democrats controlled both chambers. Now, with Republicans in control of the House, the legislation isn't likely to move forward. The stall has frustrated voting rights advocates and comes as Biden is expected to announce his reelection campaign, one he can't win without support from black voters. In his remarks, Biden touted the investments his administration has already made in historically black colleges and in infrastructure and healthcare, and how those laws impact communities like Selma, where nearly 85 percent of the population is black. We see you. We're fighting to make sure no one's left behind. This is a time of choosing and we need everybody engaged. Crossing the bridge, Biden linked arms with lawmakers and civil rights leaders. Ain't gonna let nobody turn they chanted and sang and stopped for a prayer at the section of the bridge where nearly six decades ago, state troopers began their attack. How Biden plans to tackle voting rights in the second half of his term is unclear, but his message to Selma was similar to the pitch he's making to voters. There's still work left to do. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Selma. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we look at how TikTok's new 60-minute limit for kids is working. The company says it consulted with experts, including those from the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston's Children's Hospital. And in 20 minutes, the pandemic helped speed up the development of a new class of vaccines. Scientists are now working on one for tuberculosis. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. 
A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, a fight is brewing over a new charter school in Worcester. There are questions about its financial ties and which students it will serve. And it's also prompting questions about how charter schools are approved in the state. From the newsroom, reporter Max Larkin joins us. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It'll grow increasingly cloudy and windy today as temperatures rise to a high near 43. Tonight, the clouds stick around and it drops to a low around 27. Tomorrow, colder, partly sunny and a high near 36. We'll return to the 40s on Wednesday. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Get your dancing shoes on this Friday night and come to WBUR City Space for Consalsa Night. Join WBUR Simon Rios as he talks with Consalsa host Jose Masso about his legendary career. There will be dancing, music, and food. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Select Quote. For over 35 years, Select Quote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at selectquote.com. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. This is a sampling of what some young people are posting on TikTok. You know what it never was? That's serious. You got me there. This boy be in my DM say I'm pretty. It's kind of the soundtrack for most teenagers' life. Now TikTok is starting to limit how much time people under 18 can spend scrolling the app. It says it'll help kids be more intentional about screen time, but the limits aren't hard to get around. We called up Yelena Ketsmanowicz. She's a psychologist who works with adolescents. I asked her if the new settings make a difference. It's not enough. I think it's not enough because, you know, it's almost like asking uh, adults, let's say, you know, any of us, right? Any of us adults being in the middle of a, a slot machine game, right? Or, you know, in, in the middle of it and maybe you're winning, you're on a good streak and it's middle of the night and your defenses are down and then, you know, something shows up, you know, in front of a slot machine saying, oh, you've been too long, it's <laughs> middle of the night, maybe you should reconsider. And how many people would stop, you know? Yeah. So it's not just teens. I think teens get bad rap, that they don't have much self-control, but I really don't think this is that much about teens not having self-control. I think it's about, you know, design of social media that's basically like slot machines. If TikTok contacted you and said that you get to decide how long kids are allowed to spend on TikTok, what would you say? Well, it's hard to put a number on it, but I would say in any given sitting, not more than 15 minutes. 
we know that going down these very unhelpful and hurtful rabbit holes is particularly pernicious. Past 15 minutes, you get into worse and worse and worse psychological state. And we know that it's much more helpful actually to be on it twice a day for 15 minutes than being you know, one sitting for half an hour. So I would say maybe twice a day for 15 minutes, that's it. You know, the longer you stay on it, uh, some research has shown you, you tend to get more extreme content and psychologically you end up in this space where you really feel compulsively you have to now go on and on and on. What do you hear from teens and tweens that you work with about how they believe TikTok affects their mental well-being? You know, it, what's really interesting is that most of them, more than 50% of them, I would say, and very aware that this is not helpful. I would say majority of our teens are aware that this is not helping. And yet they say, but I, I can't help it. And also there's FOMO. I, you know, I don't like it. I know it puts me in a worse mood. I feel really yucky in the morning, especially if I'm doing it until middle of the night and it's replacing my sleep or during the day it's replacing any other activities that might be actually purposeful and meaningful and joyful, right? I feel terrible. And yet, what am I missing? I can't do it. Everybody else is using it. I have to be on it. So th there is this compulsion on one hand and also this sense that if I'm not doing it, I'll really be left out. Right. Uh, but there is a sense this is not helping me. It kind of sounds like what I would read about people being worried about when television first came into our living rooms, that people would spend too much time watching television. And then when people weren't watching television, they felt like they were missing out on what was on television. Well, um, I think there are two sides to that. On, on one hand, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, it could be just a new technology and us oldies are saying, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is terrible. Uh, you know, when I was young, you know, we had nothing like that. Uh, so it is possible that it's enough time passes that, uh, you know, these young generations that are growing up now, they will become just so used to it and, you know, so familiar and that's potentially most skillful at limiting the usage and not getting trapped in rabbit holes without wanting to get trapped in rabbit holes, right? It is possible. It is possible. On the other hand, I would say that there are features, they are very, very well designed to keep users engaged to keep them uh, often not feeling great about themselves so that they stay longer on it because, of course, that's when you get exposed to the uh, online ads, right? The purpose is just get you on it and keep you on it as long as possible. They are, I mean, they are psychologists. Honestly, they're colleagues of mine. I know some of them who work for uh, big tech and, and companies that designed, you know, video games, but also all the social media. So there's a lot of basically psychologists, there's a lot of behavioral scientists working behind the scenes to make this as addictive as possible, you know, and that that was not true for TV, right? The Chinese version of TikTok is a lot more restrictive than what's being proposed for the U.S. For example, 40-minute uh, daily max for users under 14 with no access between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So what should that tell us about what China <laughs> thinks about TikTok's influence on kids? All I can say to that is that that idea sounds great. This idea that it shuts off during certain periods, I think that absolutely should be the case. I think that absolutely should be the case. That That's one of our main suggestions to families in general is, you know, 9, 10, 11, whatever it is in the evening, it, everything, just technology should shut off. And the access to social media in the bedroom of teens or tweens until wee hours of the morning is incredibly, incredibly harmful. So 
if China is restricting their TikTok users, their kids who use TikTok more than anywhere else, it makes me wonder what China knows that I don't know. Well, that reminds me of is there are a lot of reports of Silicon Valley executives who, you know, in their own home or in the, you know, schools in Silicon Valley have what among the stringest restrictions against this. I think that should tell us something. Yelena Ketsmanovich is a psychologist who leads a practice group of clinicians working with young people. She also teaches at Georgetown University. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Margaret Atwood calls her newest collection of short stories Old Babes in the Wood. And one of the stories has parallels to what's become her best-known work, The Handmaid's Tale. You can listen to our conversation with Atwood on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or just listen on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, South Korea says its domestic companies will compensate residents who were forced to do slave labor during Japan's 35-year colonial rule. It's an attempt to improve relations with Japan. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online. We're also on your phone where you can pause and rewind live radio with the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russian forces say they expect to occupy the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut soon, Ukraine's troops say they'll hold on to the area as long as possible. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more from Kharkiv. Russian President Vladimir Putin really needs a victory at this point. Uh, Ukrainian forces have pushed the Russians out of areas they occupied early in the war. And as for Ukrainians, Bakhmut has become a symbol of resistance against Russia, kind of like the city of Mariupol was in the early part of the war. And as this war drags on, the Ukrainians want to show that they will keep fighting for every inch of their land. Bakhmut is largely surrounded by Russian military units and members of a private mercenary army working with Moscow. The party of Estonia's Prime Minister Kaya Kalas is celebrating a win in yesterday's parliamentary elections. NPR's Rob Schmitz says Estonia remains a sharp critic of Russia's government. Kalas's reform party secured more than 31 percent of the vote, with the far-right conservative People's Party of Estonia coming second with 16 percent. Kalas said the election left her party in a strong position to form a coalition government and to keep calling for more pressure on Russia. Estonia is a key member of NATO's eastern flank, a group of countries that borders Russia. Wall Street futures are on the downside this morning. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says her office is working with police and other leaders to make sure this year's St. Patrick's Day Parade is a welcoming event. Last year, a white supremacist group was at the South Boston event. They held up signs reading, Keep Boston Irish. State Senator Nick Collins also wants to crack down on public and underage drinking. He represents South Boston. We're working with the City of Boston Licensing Board, along with the Boston Police and uh, Transit, to ensure that we are mitigating any transport of alcohol and purchase of alcohol, particularly by underage people, and that public drinking will not be tolerated. The parade will be held on Sunday, March 19th. Newton police are investigating an attack on two police officers over the weekend. They were answering a domestic violence call Saturday night. Police say a man there punched the officers and tried to take their guns. He's due in court this morning on charges related to assaulting a police officer. Police at UMass Amherst want students to be wary of a binge drinking challenge. It's been going around on TikTok. More than two dozen ambulances were called over the weekend for students who drank too much. School officials say those students were drinking alcohol out of gallon jugs. UMass Amherst says it plans to up its alcohol education as a result of the incidents. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. A tough loss for the Celtics at the Garden last night. They fell to the New York Knicks 131-129 to in double overtime. The Seas will be on the road tonight to play the Cleveland Cavaliers. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Marlins 4-1. to The Sox are unbeaten in nine games this spring. They'll play the Tigers this afternoon. The Northeastern women's hockey team is headed to the NCAA tournament. They'll play Yale in the quarterfinals next weekend. Northeastern is the only women's team from our area to make the tournament. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be windy with a high in the low 40s. Tonight, cloudy with a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high in the mid 30s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise, Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. For years, two key U.S. allies in Asia have been embroiled in bitter disagreements over wartime history and just as the U.S. needs their regional help. Today, South Korea has proposed a deal to resolve a dispute with Japan, and the White House has praised the move. NPR's Anthony Kuhn joins us now from Seoul. Anthony, so this dispute, what's it about and what's the plan to resolve it? Well, the South Korean government has estimated that some 1.2 million Koreans were coerced or tricked into working for Japan during the war in Japan, China, and elsewhere. And these people worked in mines and factories, and thousands of them died under brutal conditions. 
Then in 2018, South Korea's Supreme Court ruled that two big Japanese companies that used forced labor had to compensate the victims. But the companies refused to pay because they argued the issue was settled when Seoul and Tokyo normalized diplomatic relations in 1965. So this dispute recently escalated into a trade war, which affected intelligence sharing, which in turn affected these countries' alliances with the U.S., So the new plan is that instead of the Japanese companies compensating the forced laborers, South Korea will do it through a public foundation funded through donations. And instead of Japan issuing a new apology for its wartime actions, it'll affirm statements made before in which Japan basically said, we feel remorse for what we did. We apologize. Now let's all move on. How were they able to come together on this? Well, several factors facilitated this deal. You have uh, conservative pro-U.S. leaders in both capitals, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Japan and President Yoon Song-yeol in South Korea. You also have North Korea launching a record number of missiles last year and China flexing its military muscles near Taiwan last year. South Korea is hoping this new proposal is going to help end the trade spat with Japan and the two countries' leaders will resume visits and they'll haul relations out of the deep freeze. Let's hear what South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin said about the deal today. So he says, we hope that this solution will be a window of opportunity for a new history for the two countries, going beyond antagonism and conflict and moving forward toward the future. I think this is our last chance. So what he seemed to be implying by last chance was that the elderly victims of forced labor are fading from the scene, and such a deal might not be possible under different administrations. The victims of the forced labor, I'm sure they have thoughts. Yeah, that's the crucial issue. The victims themselves are not buying this deal at all. They want Japan to apologize. They want the uh, Japanese companies to compensate them, not a South Korean foundation. And the victims' lawyers have said that they intend to challenge this deal in court. And the South Korean Supreme Court ruling ordering the Japanese companies to pay still stands. So this issue is far from settled. Mentioned earlier how the the U.S. needs uh, South Korea and Japan right now. Um, what's the U.S. reaction been? Well, President Biden hailed this deal in a statement, saying that it marks a groundbreaking chapter for the two key U.S. allies. And from the U.S. perspective, it's just inconceivable that this decades-old history is distracting its allies at a time when they face growing security threats in the region, particularly from North Korea and China. And many South Koreans and Japanese agree with this. But the victims feel that it's inconceivable that any country could act as if if it had no historical memory or that any countries could try to move forward without facing up to past injustices. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn joining us from Seoul. Anthony, thanks. Thanks, A. The pandemic helped to speed the development of a new class of vaccines, the mRNA shots against COVID made by Pfizer and Moderna. Now scientists hope to create mRNA vaccines against other diseases for which traditional vaccines have not worked. NPR's Nareed Eisenman traveled to the University of Cape Town in South Africa, where they report a breakthrough against tuberculosis. mRNA vaccines are like a plug-and-play system. If you know what proteins on a virus or bacterium a person's immune system can latch onto to kill it, you insert the genetic code for those proteins into the vaccine. But when it comes to the tuberculosis bacteria, TB for short, figuring out what those target proteins should be is tricky. TB is quite a, a complex bug. That's Munyaradzi Mashoshi, one of the researchers behind this breakthrough. 
and he's about to show me the key to it. So, yeah, here will be the cells in liquid nitrogen. So oh, we'll wow. I'm looking at some enormous metal vats. Cryo tanks, yeah. Yeah, liquid nitrogen tanks. Inside are a set of frozen blood samples collected from about 6,000 South African high school students starting decades ago. Yeah. Uh, essentially cryopreserved. They were kept nicely frozen. Can I take a peek? I think I'm... As he pulls off the lid, plumes of white vapor clouds spill out. It's kind of hazy, but uh, you just might be able to see a, a little box there. These samples were originally collected for some other studies. Then the leftovers just sat here. Yeah, quite a, quite a long time, almost uh, 12 years. Back in his office, Mishoshi explains how this all came together. Tuberculosis kills more people around the world than any infectious disease other than COVID. And in South Africa, a lot of people get exposed to DB, but only a fraction of them actually develop the disease. So when the researchers analyzed the first set of samples taken from those South African high schoolers... Some of these adolescents had an immune response that indicated that they'd been exposed to TB even though they hadn't gotten sick. But it can take months after exposure to develop TB. So researchers continued to collect samples from these students for the next two years. So as we follow them up, we actually could document that some of these adolescents were diagnosed with, with active TB disease. They had symptoms. They had, they had symptoms and we could actually measure the bacteria in sputum that they were coughing up. This meant the researchers could separate out the TB-exposed students who ultimately did develop the disease. So then it allowed us to ask the question, what was different between them and those who managed to control infection during this two-year follow-up? Specifically, were the immune cells, called T-cells, of the students who never got sick latching on to a different, presumably more vulnerable part of the TB bacteria? Trying to see, you know, out of all the proteins that TB makes, what do these T-cells recognize? Except scientists didn't have a good way of doing that until 2019, when a Stanford researcher named Huang Huang came up with a technique. And Huang says when the South African researchers immediately proposed teaming up to use it, he was excited. This is a great opportunity to explore these very precious samples. So they thawed them out and got to work. Stuck in here. Mashoshi is pulling up the results on his computer. Uh, so here you can see that so far we've, we've identified uh, three proteins. These are the actual proteins that you're recommending. Yeah, yeah. And he says a number of vaccine developers, including the drug company Pfizer, are already testing them out. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, how support for Ukraine is dovetailing with a rising far right in Italy. And in our next hour, we look at the process of cleaning up toxic materials from the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Cloudy, windy, and low 40s today, upper 20s tonight under overcast skies. Tomorrow, partly sunny and in the mid-30s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. 
The Boston-based educational nonprofit Thompson Island Outward Bound will soon have a new CEO. Sylvia Watts McKinney will be both the first woman and person of color to hold the role when she takes over in May. Watts McKinney most recently led another education nonprofit in Philadelphia. She also previously served as the executive director of the Museum of African American History in Boston. Massachusetts drivers are paying an average of $3.28 for a gallon of regular fuel. According to AAA, that's 12 cents below the national average. But it's a different story for people driving diesel vehicles. The average price for a gallon of diesel in Massachusetts is $4.78. That's still 42 cents higher than the national average. A beloved donut shop on Martha's Vineyard is expanding into Boston's Fenway neighborhood. Backdoor Donuts will open a late-night pop-up location in partnership with Country Bar Loretta's Last Call next week. The shop will serve up treats from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. each night. It's 744. Donal Ryan's new novel is a love story about a family, but he also didn't want to shy away from life's darkness. Because life is so fragile, life is so short, you know, and it's so imperative that we seize the moment and try to enjoy this time we have on Earth with each other. The novel The Queen of Dirt Island, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. How much do other nations need to worry about Italy's right-wing government? The new prime minister is pursuing policies that make other democracies uncomfortable. Yet she insists she still supports a war that is all about democracy, the defense of Ukraine. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli has been watching the new government. Hours after President Biden's surprise visit to Kyiv, Prime Minister Georgia Meloni also visited the Ukrainian capital. Standing with President Volodymyr Zelensky, she said the fate of Western democracies depends on Ukraine's victory over Russia's attempt to trample international law. The battle being fought by Ukrainians is a battle for all of us, and we must do our part. Meloni's visit had been put in jeopardy by remarks made by her coalition partner, Silvio Berlusconi. The media tycoon and former prime minister, a buddy of Russian President Vladimir Putin, said that had he been prime minister, he never would have spoken to Zelensky. Because we are witnessing the devastation of his country and slaughter of civilians. Had he stopped attacking the two separatist republics of Donbass, the war never would have happened. So I judge very, very negatively this gentleman's behavior. Asked about those remarks at the press conference with Meloni, Zelensky oozed sarcasm. 
Berlusconi's home has never been bombed, Zelensky replied. No one murdered his relatives, and all thanks, he added, to the brotherly love of Russia. Meloni looked mortified. She hurriedly insisted facts were more important than words, and Berlusconi's party had always voted in Parliament in favor of Ukraine. Meloni's other coalition partner is Matteo Salvini, leader of the right-wing League Party who has voiced admiration for Putin. And when she was in opposition, Meloni had aimed her invective at NATO and the EU, making some observers question her sincerity. I think that Giorgia Meloni bluffed in terms of supporting the Western alliance in Ukraine. Stefano Feltri, editor of the Daily Domani, says that despite her pledges, her government has been slow in approving an increase in military support of Ukraine. But she could not deliver anything because she is leading a coalition which is formed of three main parties, two of them are pro-Russian, and the third one used to be anti-European, anti-US, anti-France, and anti-Germany, which is her, her own party, Brothers of Italy. And on the domestic front, there's growing concern. Luca Solfri, editor of the online paper Il Post, worries that the Meloni government could roll back Italy's achievements in human rights. This government is dangerous for what we have achieved for women, for migrants, against racism, and for people in jails. It's a right-wing government. The government's first bill was a crackdown on rave parties that could be used even against union rallies. And in a sign of the coalition's anti-migrant stance, it has imposed tough restrictions on humanitarian ships, a law the United Nations says will imperil lives. As to Ukraine, Meloni is sticking to the Western Front, but she's also facing growing Ukraine fatigue. A survey by the European Council for Foreign Relations showed that one out of every four Italians see Russia as an ally or strategic partner, a trend that could make Italy the weak link in the Western Front backing Ukraine. Silvia Poldroli, NPR News, Rome. This is NPR News. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Did you have a good weekend? I had a taxes weekend. How about yes. you, We Rupa? all had a taxes weekend. We got our taxes done. <laughs> I think it's that one month away suddenly feels really close. Yes. So it's time to start getting it done. Yes. Yes, that's right. By the way, haven't heard Sylvia Poggioli in so long. It was wonderful to hear her yeah, just Yeah, that was some great reporting. Yeah. We're going to bring you some great reporting from Max Larkin Mm -hmm. today, you know, WBUR education reporter, following. So there's this interesting controversy over a charter school that has been approved by the state and seems to not be welcome in Worcester. Uh, And it's controversy on two levels. One, there's a local museum that is sort of behind the charter school concerns that it's about the bottom line for the local museum, Mm -hmm. but also this disconnect between what a school board might want, what a community might seem to want, and the state's ability to approve a charter school, even if that doesn't seem like what the local community wants. Now, there's always more to it than that, and Max mm-hmm. will bring it all. But it is an interesting look at this ongoing tension we have here. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So he'll run it down. He'll bring us sound. He'll tell us how it's all working. You know, Max, he's always good. Yeah. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. 
listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. Low 40s today under cloudy skies and with some gusty winds. Tonight it falls into the 20s. Tomorrow a mix of sun and clouds only in the mid-30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. We now have new clarity on the biggest cheating scandal in baseball since the steroid era. In 2017, the Houston Astros won the World Series. They also cheated. Two years after their win, an investigation by The Athletic detailed how the Astros used live video fees to steal pitching signs from opposing teams. One of the authors of the investigation was Evan Drellick. He's written a new book called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. He says it starts with the 2011 hiring of general manager Jeff Luno, who arrived in baseball with no Major League Baseball experience. Before a short stint with the St. Louis Cardinals, He'd worked at a business consulting firm. Jeff Luna was a fantasy baseball player. He built rosters and competed with his friends. You know, when he arrives in baseball and in Houston, Luno really fell in love with the idea of being a disruptor. He wanted to revolutionize baseball in the same way that Billy Bean, who was the general manager of the A's, had done so 20 years ago, and it was Billy Bean who becomes the star of Moneyball, the famous book by Michael Lewis. And so Luno arrives in Houston very much set to do things his way. Now, with sports executives like Jeff Luno, typically it seems as if they have a great relationship with the numbers, but not such a great relationship with people. Was Jeff Luno the type that kind of rubbed people the wrong way? Jeff Luno absolutely rubbed people the wrong way. And I think there's an important distinction There's no question that analytics and advanced numbers and the arrival of big data inside of baseball produced benefits, created innovation, that there were positives attached to it. Luno, though, his management style, the way he would foster conflict in his organization, he withheld promotions, he kept salaries very low. Uh, It became a cutthroat culture, and that's not unfamiliar to those who exist outside of baseball. It was very new inside of baseball. And players, agents, stakeholders were really unhappy with how they were being treated in a variety of ways. All right, so eventually things start to turn around for the Astros. They get a lot better. And then the new commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, starts uh, putting an emphasis on more video replay to help cut down on umpires getting the calls wrong. Explain how that tech threatened the in-game communication between the pitcher and the catcher. The commissioner, Rob Manfred, you know, rightly looked around and said, well, why can't our players and managers decide to challenge a call on the field? Everybody at home can see a video replay if somebody got it wrong. We should go to a challenge system. But what comes along with that challenge system is a video room, a dedicated video room for every single team. And inside that video room are different feeds, including feeds directly fixed on the catcher's signs. Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball apparently forgot that this is a hyper-competitive environment, that these are players and teams that always want to try to get an edge. So players and teams start 
using those video rooms to look at the catcher's signs. And they do this in game. And Major League Baseball had a long time on the books, a rule prohibiting the use of electronic equipment to steal signs. So how sanctioned organization-wide was this with the Houston Astros? Was it just the players who noticed it and decided to do it? Or did it reach all the way to the top where management uh, knew this was something they could use and decided to tell everyone, hey, why don't you use it? Jeff Luno, the general manager, has denied knowledge of the cheating scheme. Uh, Major League Baseball found some evidence that that at least was not believable. Uh, there are emails from a lower level staffer to Luno making direct references to what's called the system. And that is a reference to the cheating scheme. Luno said he did not read those emails. The culture inside of Houston was really strained. The relationship between Jeff Luno, the general manager, and manager AJ Hinch was contentious and distrusting. The relationship between the players and the front office lacked a lot of trust. Well, gee, do you think in that kind of environment, the manager AJ Hinch is gonna run to Jeff Luno, the general manager, and say, hey, Jeff, we got a problem here. We got a cheating scheme and I think we should stop it. And what you see over time in Houston is how these different culture and decision-making approaches add up to an environment that is really not one that is prepared to handle an ethical breach. The whole focus in Houston is on winning, making money, data efficacy. It is not on everything else, and everything else comes back to bite the Astros. So in 2017, the Astros win the World Series. How much of that was due to the sign stealing in the way they did it? I think this is both an impossible and unfortunate question. The manager, AJ Hinch, has been asked this on the record. He said, we probably will never know, but we did it to ourselves. Uh, my book has an anecdote from the bench coach of the team in 2017, who's now the manager of the Boston Red Sox, where he tells people privately after the fact, we stole that bleeping World Series. Whether that's true or not, truly nobody can know. But the fact that the question exists, will continue to exist, is really among the tragedies of the whole situation. Nobody knows. In the end, general manager Jeff Luno and manager A.J. Hinch lost their jobs, but not a single player suffered any consequences from Major League Baseball. To many fans, it seems like the Astros kind of got away with it. Evan Drellick has a different view. This will follow everybody involved for the rest of their careers. It is possible that it will impact Hall of Fame voting. One of the leaders of the cheating scheme, Carlos Beltran, uh, was newly eligible for the Hall of Fame this past winter. He did not get in. It's an interesting question of would he have at least received more support if he had not been one of the ringleaders of the cheating scheme. You know, players continue to be booed. And what underlies this is a lot of these players are incredibly talented. Jose Altuve, star second baseman of the Astros, is an incredibly talented player. But he will, as everybody on this Astros team, will be forever associated with one of the most famous cheating scandals in baseball, if not overall sports history. That's Evan Drellick. His new book is called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. Evan, thanks. Thanks, A. 
Since that 2017 season, the Astros have gotten to the World Series three more times. They broke through again last year, winning the World Series with a roster including five players from that 2017 team. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steven Skip. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Officials say no toxic materials have leaked from a second Norfolk Southern train derailment in Ohio a little more than a month after the one in East Palestine. It's Monday, March 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a massive fire has decimated a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh, leaving thousands of people without shelter. Also, residents of a small main town that provides water to Poland Spring wants more oversight of the company. If we're going to basically give that prized commodity away, we better do it knowingly and it should be controlled by the state. And this hour, a new treaty aimed at protecting the ocean's ecosystems. It allows for setting up marine protected areas in areas beyond national jurisdiction, so in the high seas. This has never been possible before. Cloudy and low 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. People in Selma, Alabama spent yesterday marking the 58th anniversary of a march for civil rights that later became known as Bloody Sunday. President Biden was among those who walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where state police attacked marchers in 1965. From Troy Public Radio, Kyle Gassett has more. I'm standing here at the top of the Edmund Pettus Bridge as the march is beginning to disperse. Selma came to this event hoping to hear words of comfort from their president as they recover from a deadly tornado that struck in January. Much of the city left in devastation. The president pledged to stay here and work with them until the job is done to rebuild Selma better. Kyle Gasset reporting. At least a dozen people have died in severe storms that crashed into the Midwest and South over the weekend. Five people were killed in Kentucky and three people died in Alabama, according to those states' governors. The tracking site, poweroutage.us, says nearly 180,000 customers don't have electricity from Michigan to Tennessee. The worst affected state is Kentucky. The U.S. Department of Transportation has announced it is taking more steps to help parents avoid paying extra money to sit with their children on airplanes. NPR's Kristen Wright reports a few airlines are promising to end the fees. DOT says Alaska Airlines, American, and Frontier are now agreeing to guarantee parents can sit with their young children without paying what the federal agency calls junk fees and included in their customer service plans. The assurance comes as DOT rolls out a new family seating dashboard that shows which airlines guarantee family seating without additional charges and which ones don't. DOT issued a notice last summer stating its policy that U.S. airlines ensure at no extra cost children 
children 13 and younger are seated with an accompanying adult if seats are available when they're booked. Airlines that comply receive a green check mark on the dashboard. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. Hundreds of scientists, doctors, patients, bioethicists, and others have started gathering in London today. They're attending the third International Summit on Human Genome Editing. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The summit will wrestle with a host of tough questions raised by techniques that let scientists easily modify human DNA. At the last summit five years ago, a Chinese scientist shocked the world by revealing he had created the first genetically modified babies. Since then, the scientist served a three-year prison sentence and has set up a new lab in Beijing. Meanwhile, doctors have made dramatic progress using gene editing to treat diseases. The big questions are, should anyone ever again make gene-edited babies? And will gene-editing treatments be too complex and expensive for people who need them most? Rob Stein, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. It has been one month since a devastating earthquake hit southern Turkey and northern Syria. At least 50,000 people have been killed. Millions of others have been injured and displaced. Victims continue to say that relief aid is slow in coming. In France, protests against French President Emmanuel Macron's retirement reform project will step into high gear this week. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports trade unions vow to shut the country down tomorrow. For the sixth time since the start of the year, unions are calling for a nationwide day of strikes and demonstrations. Tuesdays could be the biggest yet. The country's transport minister warned of heavy disruptions to rail and metro service, and France's Civil Aviation Authority has advised airlines to cut flights by 20 percent. Public sector employees like teachers, nurses, and oil refinery workers will walk off their jobs to demonstrate in the street. The rolling strikes could continue for several days in certain sectors. A majority of the French agree with the union's tough response to a pension reform they consider unnecessary. The main point of contention is raising the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Indonesian government is reporting a landslide has killed at least 10 people on one of its remote northern islands. The disaster comes after a powerful storm struck the Indonesian island. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made an unannounced visit to northeast Syria on Saturday. U.S. Army General Mark Milley visited a U.S. base there where troops are working to stop Islamic State. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, from Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dozens of Massachusetts children are stuck in hospitals because they cannot access the specialized services they need. That's according to a new report from the Massachusetts Hospital Association and the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Systems. It found nearly 70 kids were awaiting discharge from area hospitals at the end of last year. The affected children are those who require services from state agencies, most within the Department of Children and Families. The Massachusetts Hospital Association says a lack of beds at inpatient facilities is partially to blame. Massachusetts plans to close the state's free COVID testing sites. All 11 sites will close by the end of the month. Health officials say demand for tests has gone way down. Wastewater data also shows infection levels are lower after the holidays. You can still get COVID tests at doctor's offices, pharmacies, and urgent care centers.
The state is offering higher pay and bigger signing bonuses to get more people to apply to be lifeguards. WBUR's Irina Machbariani reports. This summer, people can cool off at dozens of state-run beaches and pools. To ensure safety, the state needs around 800 lifeguards. Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation Commissioner Doug Rice says it's a competitive hiring market. There's certainly a lot more job opportunities out there for young people in particular who are typically our prime candidates for these lifeguard positions. So I think in an economy like this, we just have to remain competitive. The department has increased the hourly wage range by a dollar this year. Lifeguards will be paid between $22 and $27 per hour. They're also eligible for bonuses up to $1,250. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majawadiani. The person now in charge of amping up Boston's nightlife starts her job today. Corrine Reynolds is the director of Nightlife Economy. Her job is to make the city's social scene a little more vibrant. Reynolds says she'll start with a focus on downtown, but hopes to eventually support events in other neighborhoods. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. The Celtics lost to the New York Knicks in double overtime last night. The final at the Garden was 131-129. to The Seas will visit the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. Increasing clouds today. Temperatures will get into the mid-40s. Cloudy overnight. It'll be in the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for snow. Mid-30s. It should stay dry the rest of the week. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.N. has reached a historic agreement on oceans. A treaty aims to protect biodiversity and environmental interests in international waters, roughly 40 percent of the Earth's surface. It also promotes a global cooperation to manage fishing, shipping, and seafloor mining. Lisa Spear is the director of the National Resources Defense Council's International Oceans Program. She was part of the U.N. negotiating team. Lisa, what ground rules uh, have been set here that will make the biggest difference? So this treaty is a big step forward. It provides a pathway for establishing large-scale, strongly protected marine parks, which is what scientists tell us is needed to help reverse the decline of the world's oceans. It also lays the groundwork for strengthening management of human activities outside protected areas. So together, these two achievements, I think, will mark a major step forward for the ocean and biodiversity conservation worldwide. And it it took 20 years to uh, make this deal happen. What was the the clincher? I was had a lot fewer gray hairs when we started. Uh, The clincher (laughs) really was the resolution of a number of different issues, one of which was the basic divide between regulating existing activities on the high seas and the current structure of management versus enabling the global community to have a greater say in what happens in these international waters. And that played out in a variety of contexts, including through the sharing of any benefits that might derive from commercialization of uh, what's called marine genetic resources, which are uh, derived from the high seas. So there was a 
there were some money issues in there, but there were also some uh, power issues. You know, how, who who gets to decide what happens in this global commons was a fundamental issue on the table during the negotiations. And when it comes to um, addressing everything that's going to be addressed or that should be addressed uh, with this agreement, how much of that do you think will, for lack of a better word, spill over to waters that are controlled by countries? Uh, great question. So the ocean is a fluid environment, as we all know, and marine species don't respect international boundaries. They cross them regularly, migrating you know, across entire oceans in some cases. So protection of the high seas will really help ensure that domestic waters of individual nations around the world do not suffer as a result of activities that are harmful in the high seas. And it's important because billions of people uh, around the world rely on the ocean for basic needs, their food, their jobs, their income, their sustenance, culturally as well as economically. So it's, uh, it's a critically important piece of the p- ocean conservation puzzle that has been ignored for decades. And we've now finally gotten to a place where we have um, the groundwork laid to, to really change that and to bring the standards of management and conservation and protection up to those that are in place, have been in place in the U.S. since the 70s, really, and in most countries for decades. And Lisa, what's the number one way that this agreement will protect marine life? The, f- the most important step is it provides a pathway forward for creating large-scale marine parks, uh, which are strongly protected, where damaging human activities are not permitted. And the science tells us that that is the single most important thing we can do to enhance ocean resilience in the face of growing threats related to climate change, including, you know, ocean warming and ocean acidification, which is taking place as a result of CO2 emissions. So this is a big, a big deal at being able to establish these large scale, strongly protected marine protected areas uh, is probably the most single most important aspect of this agreement from a conservation standpoint. All right. Lisa Spear is with the National Resources Defense Council. Lisa, thanks. Thousands of Rohingya refugees are homeless, again. They fled repression in Myanmar. They've been living in a camp in Bangladesh, in a district called Cox's Bazar, and then their camp caught fire. Dr. Izatala Majid is with UNICEF, the United Nations Children Fund in Bangladesh, and joins us from there. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, nice to be with you. I am looking at a news agency photo of this camp, and I'm seeing little huts, improvised wooden huts with flames coming out of the roofs and amazing amounts of black smoke. What's it like there? Absolutely. Situation is very dire. Cox's Bazar is hosting a million refugee in 33 camps. Uh, yesterday at 2.30 p.m., uh, a fire started in Camp 11 and quickly to spread to the neighboring camps. Uh, Authorities and the fire breakers, they did their best uh, to control the fire. And around 6 p.m., uh, the fire became under control. These three camps uh, host 100,000 refugees, and 50% of them are children under age of 18. 
we are estimating that 12,000 refugees are badly affected, uh, which is, again, half of them, 6,000 or more than 6,000 of them are children. 2,000 shelters are burned completely. In addition to these shelters, there are service points uh, that UNICEF is also providing support in that one. The learning centers or the schools, 22 of them completely burned and damaged. Uh, destroyed while six of them are partially damaged. We also support the nutrition program and the child protection program. One mm -hmm. multipurpose center and one nutrition center or all of them, they are completely burnt uh, and they are at the aisle. I want to understand the numbers you're giving me. You said 100,000 people in those three camps, so it's as if a small city had caught fire. And within that, about 12,000 people have completely lost their homes. They had almost nothing to begin with, and they have lost everything. Is that what you mean to tell me? That is completely correct, uh, that 12,000 people, they lost their houses and they have nowhere to stay. So last night, they spent the house in the, in, with their relatives and in the other service points, uh, which there are some facilities, so all of them together, they passed the overnight. Uh, they had nothing to, nowhere to go. Was it already difficult to get proper resources to this million people in the variety of camps, the constellation of camps that you describe? The, the, the funding situation, first of all, these refugees are 100% dependent to the international aid. Uh, Fortunately, with the support of the international community, different agencies are on the ground. Some agencies, they provide based on their mandate food, another one water or education. So the situation was already very bad in a very congested camps these people were leaving and their standard of life was really low and it was so difficult for them. Now with this fire happened, so these Rohingyas uh, for the second time they became homeless and nothing left for them. They lost all their properties uh, and they need to start from zero. Dr. Izatala Majid is with UNICEF. He is in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, where a massive fire struck three different camps there home to 100,000 people. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks to you, and nice to be with you. The late jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery was born 100 years ago today. Recordings of Wes Montgomery inspire and even intimidate living guitar players like Mark Whitfield, who's known for his own recordings with some of the biggest names in pop and jazz. When you listen to him play, you're listening to someone who is playing the guitar in a way that no one before him played. Whitfield says Montgomery's distinct sound came in part from using his thumb on the guitar strings instead of a pick. In learning to play the guitar, uh, he, you know, he plugged his guitar into the amp he was playing, and his wife kept complaining that no matter how soft he played, it was still too loud. It was going to wake up the kids. It's interesting. He didn't turn the amp off. He wanted to play with the amp on, and he discovered that playing with his thumb gave him the ability to keep the amp on, but produced a much mellower, quieter sound. I love that they say necessity is the mother of invention, and in this case, it was the necessity of keeping the kids in bed. So what kind of a person was he? The music historian Ashley Kahn recalls a gentle, supportive performer 
whose generosity was evident in a rehearsal track in 1965. Piano players having trouble with the chords and the graciousness and the sort of warmth that uh, Wes has in working out this piece which the piano player was unfamiliar with. F minor, F minor stuff up, B flat. And he takes his time and he slows down the tempo. Here we have Wes enjoying the company of fellow musicians and just enjoying the music itself. Wes Montgomery was just 45 when he died in 1968, but Whitfield says his influence lives on, on stage and in mentoring the next generation of jazz. Wes was, was one who believed in unity amongst musicians and in the community. And I, and I don't just mean the community of black people, just in the community in general. That Wes was a believer in fostering uh, attitudes that brought people together. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, climate change is prompting residents of a small Maine town to question the company Poland Springs' use of its water. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Donald Ryan's new novel is a love story about a family, but he also didn't want to shy away from life's darkness. Because life is so fragile, life is so short, you know, and it's so imperative that we seize the moment and try to enjoy this time we have on Earth with each other. The novel The Queen of Dirt Island, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It'll grow increasingly cloudy and windy today as temperatures rise to a high near 44. Tonight, the clouds stick around and it drops to a low around 26. Tomorrow, colder, partly sunny with a high near 36. We'll return to the 40s on Wednesday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from HBO Max, the HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, tonight at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Residents of a small town in Maine are calling for more accountability from bottled water giant Poland Spring. The company extracts water from land it owns in Denmark, Maine, and then sells it to consumers. The town isn't compensated for what gets withdrawn. And as Susan Sharon reports, climate change is fueling an interest in protecting the local water supply. Last November, on the north end of Long Pond, Jim Metevier stood on his backyard dock and explained how water levels on his property have gradually receded. At first, he said the dock needed two platforms to access the pond from the shore. And then, probably about seven years ago, I had one, two, three, four, five, five sections, plus there's a floating one at the end that you can see that's all still in the mud. Mativier's family has had a home here for 30 years. As ponds go, this one is small, about four miles long and 19 feet deep. In the spring, he says the water is high enough to launch his canoe from the dock. But for the past two summers and into the fall, the dock has literally been stuck in the mud. I haven't been able to get my canoe out since July. While Poland Spring does not withdraw water from the pond, a state permit for, quote, large-scale pumping or extraction of groundwater, spring water, and water from aquifers was first approved in Denmark in 2005. The company is allowed to withdraw up to 432,000 gallons of water per day and no more than 105.1 million gallons in any 365-day period. It's piped to a loading dock and trucked to bottling plants about 30 miles away. All of it is extracted from two boreholes near Long Pond. One is less than half a mile from Michael Fitzgibbon's vacation home. When the property was purchased, I think the conception was that having Poland Springs as a neighbor was going to be a good thing. Last summer, Fitzgibbon says his backyard was better suited for a golf course than it was for launching a boat, and his feelings about his corporate neighbor have changed. My water receded 15 feet. And if we're going to basically give that prized commodity away, we better do it knowingly, and it should be controlled by the state. We're not causing the pond to be low. It's naturally low. Mark Dubois is the natural resource manager for Poland Spring, whose parent company is Connecticut-based Blue Triton Brands, formerly known as Nestle Waters North America. He says the pond recharges naturally at certain times of the year. When it rains, the pond will fill up. When it doesn't rain, the pond does get low, uh, but it's not involved with our operation. So it's not spring-fed? Not that I'm aware of. Nope. But a 1952 study by the U.S. Geological Survey describes Long Pond as a small spring-fed trout pond. John Mullaney, a hydrologist with the USGS New England Water Science Center, says that's the same as being groundwater fed, which means it likely has some connection to the aquifer. And while he hasn't studied the pond, Mullaney says if that's the case, pumping operations could affect water levels along with drought and other factors. You know, some of the types of changes can be rather subtle from pumping. So when groundwater is extracted from somewhere, it's taken out of storage and moved somewhere else, you know, there is ultimately going to be less water coming out somewhere. And that's the question is always where and to what degree is allowable. Surface water, springs, and more than two dozen wells are regularly monitored in Denmark. The data are reviewed by an outside expert, by the Maine Department of Environmental Protection, 
and by a geologist hired by the town of Denmark. They're also shared on the town's website. We can ensure that we have no adverse impact on area water supplies, but also we can see that things are pretty stable here in, in Denmark. Some residents are skeptical. Given what's happening in the western U.S., they say more regulation is needed. They also question the independence of the town geologist, whose costs of services are reimbursed by Poland Spring, and whose predecessor was recently hired by an engineering firm that works closely with the company. It's hard for us not to feel sometimes like there is indeed a conflict of interest. Local planning board member Laurie LaMountain also serves on a committee that is reviewing the town's water extraction ordinance. During an October workshop on the aquifer, she questioned the current geologist, Brian Bachman, about his allegiance to the town of Denmark. Bachman said his professional code of ethics makes that clear. We're obligated to, to represent the best interests of our client. And the client being? In this instance, it would be the town. This is the well. How often do you look at it? Every time it rains. After the rain, we take a picture to see what the levels are. Not far from Long Pond, Chris Doyle of Denmark has a small house and a shallow well that was dug two years ago. It's just outside what's known as the zone of influence, the area of groundwater affected by pumping. So it's not one of the wells that's monitored. But Doyle says at certain times of the year, it runs dry. This spring, we, it was full. And then we realized it wasn't coming back after a week or so. So we stopped using it completely. Doyle can tell how much Poland Spring is pumping by looking at the town's website. She's convinced that her water level drops when extraction rates increase. But the company stands by its data that show groundwater levels are adequate. Town geologist Brian Bachman said at his workshop that it would be helpful to have more information. For me to help you make decisions about what, what you guys need to do, is, that's, what I, that's what I deal in. I love information, so the more information, the better from my perspective. The town's ordinance includes action and alert levels. If water drops to a certain point in Poland Springs monitoring wells, pumping can be reduced or even halted. But LaMountain says that hasn't happened in more than a decade, not since the town select board agreed to relax the threshold at the company's request. That's why she and others are hopeful that the Water Ordinance Review Committee can strengthen protections in the coming months. We're living in a changing climate. And it's just a lot of water to be taking from this aquifer. The final decision will be up to the town select board. Mark Dubois says he hopes what emerges will be based on science. Denmark residents, meanwhile, say they're just looking for some reassurance and some more control. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the head of the private Wagner mercenary group fighting to occupy the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut says it isn't getting the ammunition it needs from Russia. It's 8.30. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of WBUR's Community Advisory Board. The next open meeting will be held on Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit wbmore.org slash open meetings. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Many survivors of the powerful earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria one month ago say they're still struggling to find shelter. That earthquake killed more than 50,000 people as houses collapsed across the region. The BBC's Anna Foster has more. The United Nations Development Programme estimates that in Turkey alone, at least one and a half million people are still inside the disaster zone with nowhere to live. Two million more have left altogether for other parts of the country. Turkey's President Erdogan has promised that reconstruction will start soon in the devastated areas, but it won't happen quickly. According to the World Bank, the quake caused $34 billion worth of damage, 4% of the GDP of a country with an already struggling economy. The UN says the framework for an agreement's been reached on protecting marine biodiversity in international waters. Dino Grandoni is with The Washington Post. This is an agreement to protect what are called the high seas. These are areas more than 200 nautical miles away from the coast, and it's area generally where no one nation has control. And for years, there had been no way to designate any of that part of the ocean for conservation protection. The agreement could take years to implement. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rawlins was in Alabama with President Biden this weekend. They were there to mark the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. That was the 1965 police attack on peaceful civil rights demonstrators crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Rawlins and the other attorneys general also visited sites of violent police crackdowns during the civil rights movement. I want all of my colleagues from around the country to bring back the rich history that we've learned and an urgency with respect to the work that needs to be done protecting people's civil rights and upholding the Constitution. Rollins is the first black woman to serve as the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. The city of Boston is working to prevent extremist groups from showing up at this year's St. Patrick's Day parade. Last year, masked members of a neo-Nazi group held a banner along the South Boston route. It read, Keep Boston Irish. State Senator Nick Collins says multiple agencies are coordinating efforts to prevent that from happening again. It's a combination of rapid response, uh, an increase in presence, and communication ahead of time to any and all guests that they come to have a safe and enjoyable day, and then anybody caught violating the law by using these public assets to promote their hateful propaganda will be held accountable. Mayor Wu's office says the mayor is working closely with the police department to ensure a safe and welcoming event. The parade will be held March 19th. Massachusetts health officials are investigating a COVID outbreak at a South Yarmouth nursing home. Five residents of the Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehab Center died from the disease. More than 90 residents and staff are also sick. The state says it sent in a rapid response team to help slow down infections. The MBTA will move ahead today with plans to demolish a staircase at the Milton T Station. An MBTA spokesperson says the staircase is unsafe and poses a risk to the public. Town officials tried to convince the T for years to fix the staircase instead of removing it. They even asked Governor Healy to get involved. Because of the demolition, buses will replace trains on the Mattapan line every night this week. It's 834. 
WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. The Celtics lost a back-and-forth game to the New York Knicks last night. The final score in double overtime was 131-129. to The Seas will visit the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Marlins 4-1. to The Sox will play the Tigers this afternoon. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be windy with a high in the low 40s. Tonight, cloudy with a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip. And I'm A. Martinez. Ukrainian soldiers are hanging on to an eastern city that Russian forces have been trying to occupy for months. Bakhmut is not a big city. Around 75,000 people before the war drove many inhabitants away. Look at a map and you see why it has become a big focus. It's in eastern Ukraine in a region that Russia has been trying to dominate. Ukraine's armed forces are staying as long as they can. Joining us now from the northeastern city of Kharkiv is NPR's Ukraine correspondent, Joanna Kakissis. Joanna, the focus on Bakhmut, why is it so important? So, well, for the Russians, it would be their first significant victory in like seven or eight months. And, you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin really needs a victory at this point. Uh, Ukrainian forces have pushed the Russians out of areas they occupied early in the war, like parts of the Kharkiv region where I am right now. And, and as for Ukrainians, Bakhmut has become a symbol of resistance against Russia, kind of like the city of Mariupol was in the early part of the war. And as this war drags on, the Ukrainians want to show that they will keep fighting for every inch of their land. Joanna, can the Ukrainians hang on to this town? I mean, and why do they seem to want it so badly? So based on the latest reports, it doesn't look good in Bakhmut for the Ukrainians right now. Some reports suggest that Russian forces are even in parts of the city already. And these forces include members of the Wagner Group, a private mercenary army which operates alongside Russian military units. And they say Bakhmut is mostly surrounded. Uh, so we asked a Ukrainian military spokesman about these developments. His name is Serhii Cherevati. And he insists that these reports are, quote, Russian propaganda. Russian propaganda is not reality. We are able to deliver ammunition, provisions and medicine to our units in Bakhmut and also take our wounded from Bakhmut. He claims that Ukrainian soldiers are also exhausting the Russian forces in Bakhmut and depleting Russian stocks of ammunition and weapons. He would not confirm or deny that a couple of bridges have been blown up by the Ukrainians, uh, which would indicate the beginning of a tactical withdrawal. But it is clear that the Ukrainians want to hang on to Bakhmut as long as possible. So uh, Russian forces pay as high a price as possible for as long as possible uh, before Ukrainian soldiers are forced to abandon the city. But Joanna, I mean, I- After seven months of constant fighting, what's left in that city? 
Yeah, uh, there doesn't seem to be much left of Bakhmut at this point, at least based on videos posted to social media. Imagine block after block of shelled and collapsed buildings, of heaps of smoldering rubble, and, and yet incredibly, a about 10% of the population still remains at Bakhmut, uh, hundreds of people. Uh, many of them are older people, though there are some children with them, and they are huddled in basements without electricity or running water. We asked the military spokesman, said he, Chedavati about this, and he told us that by law, Ukrainian forces cannot make these civilians evacuate. We tell them that Russia is threatening you, but many people, especially those who are older, they are afraid of changing their surroundings. Maybe they think they will not be accepted anywhere else. He says Ukrainian soldiers keep trying to remind these civilians that Bakhmut is the most dangerous place in the country right now. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kharkiv. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome. Residents of East Palestine, Ohio, want answers after a train derailment and a toxic spill. Residents of Gratiot County, Michigan, know their experience. Almost 50 years ago, a chemical company there mixed fire retardant into cattle feed, animals, and then people got sick. The same company dumped toxic waste into the Pine River for decades. Ed Lorenz is the vice chair of the Pine River Superfund Task Force and joins us next. Good morning. Good morning. Is your community still living in the aftermath? Oh, yes. There's an active cleanup of uh, contaminants at the site of the old plant, uh, a major cleanup that's eventually costing us about a half billion dollars. And there's all sorts of spots in the river and other locations that uh, potentially are still contaminated. I'm interested if you're a lifelong resident of that area, if this has been something that you've dealt with basically your whole life. Well, I'm not exactly, but I've been here for more than 30 years. Um, I, by chance, when I first moved here, uh, was exposed to the problem. It already had been uh, almost 20 years since the accident that started our problems. Wow. Did the government help? Well, you know, I think what people in East Palestine will be finding out, you know, there are basically three parts of this. One is the polluter. Another is, you know, the government, uh, both environmental and public health agencies, and then the citizens. And in a sense, the, the EPA, you know, for the environment and the health agencies work for us, and they do, but the people often have a different perspective than even those agencies, and then certainly the polluter. Meaning that residents on the ground may simply see the world differently than either the polluter or the federal authorities who are supposed to look after you. Right. The, I mean, the government, somewhat sympathizing with their position, I mean, they're, you know, government is controlled in our system by laws and uh, processes that have been put in place in a general way to deal with a general problem of, say, serious, you know, pollution of the ground in a community. But, you know, each situation is different and people bring to exposures uh, their own unique uh, previous experience that can complicate a new exposure to a contaminant. I feel that you're telling me that people in East Palestine 
should not, cannot look for immediate closure. This could take a long time based on your experience. So given that, what advice would you give to people in East Palestine and the surrounding area? I think one thing that happened to us, and I think this could be a model for them, and I know our organization would be glad to talk to them, we're a bunch of citizen volunteers, is to organize independently. Now there's a little gray area because this is so recent, some of the cleanups being handled under something called Superfund. And under the Superfund, the cleanup contaminated sites, there's a procedure for communities to establish advisory groups and uh, even to get independent funding uh, through EPA to hire their own experts to do second guessing. And that has helped us greatly. Do your own research, but in a real way. Mr. Lorenz, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Ed Lorenz of the Pine River Superfund Task Force. He's written about his experience in a book called Civic Empowerment in an Age of Corporate Greed. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, a program in New Hampshire is training mechanics who specialize in electric vehicle repair as part of an attempt to address a nationwide shortage in EV mechanics. Cloudy, windy, and low 40s today, upper 20s tonight under overcast skies. Tomorrow, partly sunny and in the mid-30s. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com, that's Serta with a C. And Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Now, in business news, one of the state's top energy officials is pushing back against the company behind a planned offshore wind farm off Cape Cod. Avengrid says its contract to build the Commonwealth Wind Project is no longer viable because of inflation. Rebecca Tepper, the state's new energy and environmental affairs secretary, sent a letter to Avengrid last month. The Boston Globe reports she's accusing the company of misrepresenting itself in the initial bid. Tepper also hinted in the letter that Avangrid's actions could jeopardize any future contracts with the state. The Seacrest Beach Hotel on Buzzards Bay in North Falmouth is under new ownership. The 92-year-old hotel was bought by two companies based in New York and Philadelphia for nearly $54 million. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and William James College's Hybrid Graduate Certificate in Executive Coaching. Boost your career or start a new one. Apply now for fall. williamjames.edu. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. 
And Amy Martinez, electric vehicles tend to require less maintenance than their combustion engine counterparts. But when an EV needs a fix, not every mechanic has a know-how. Sarah Gibson of New Hampshire Public Radio tells us how local schools and repair shops are bringing technicians up to speed. In the auto repair wing of White Mountains Community College, Troy Lachance and his students are building an electric car. And you can see the relief here for where that high voltage cabling comes through. See it? Yep. So that box will bolt to the floor. The kit for this car is designed by a California company as a learning tool. It can be disassembled and rebuilt every semester. It looks pretty plain, two seats, no roof, but it can go up to 60 miles an hour. Lachance says this is the new frontier. It's not like it used to be. It's not all, you know, gears and oil and a lot of mechanical stuff anymore. There is a lot of programming and electronics that happens in general. Uh, EVs obviously is even more. The number of electric vehicles in New England is expected to increase dramatically over the next decade. Experts estimate by at least 2 million. Lachance says technicians are going to need to know the EV basics, how they work, and how to handle their high-voltage batteries, which, without proper safety precautions, can be deadly. It's really the high-voltage stuff, and being able to recognize when high-voltage is included in that repair is part of that training. Community colleges are part of the pipeline preparing the next generation of technicians. But Lachance says his classes are shrinking. Fewer young people are interested in this career. It's a problem the whole auto industry is facing. And requiring an EV class as part of the degree here was a risk, because most students aren't jazzed about EVs at first. Take 22-year-old Alex Anderson. He got interested in cars first with his granddad, fixing motorcycles in his 1992 Toyota Camry. He says at first, working on an EV wasn't intuitive. I always made fun of electric vehicles before I did this class. I still do a little bit, but I actually quite enjoy it. And if he really enjoys it, he could end up working for someone like Drew Young, who directs services and an apprenticeship program at a used car dealership near Concord. I would almost liken it to being, you know, in the medical profession, some people specialize, some people are general practitioners, some people are surgeons and you've got to find out where your niche is. Young says so far, only a handful of his technicians have been excited about getting EV certified. He's hoping that gradually more will get on board. At some point in time, internal combustion vehicles are going to become fewer, and these will become more prevalent. And if you can't do these, you're not going to be as, as worthwhile or as valuable as an employee. At a Ford dealership up the road from Young Shop, Brian Tuttle is an example of a technician in that EV niche. I am definitely the EV nerd here. I've gotten pretty much immersed in them. Tuttle's been working with Ford Motor Company for 30 years, and he says electric vehicles have kept him engaged intellectually for the last 10. EV customers come here specifically for him, but he wonders about who will take his place. Obviously, we're not going to be around forever. It's going to be a little challenging for the industry when when those old guys retire. Tuttle says some of the best bets are the community colleges and apprenticeship programs. And maybe with the right teacher and class, young people will get that EV bug just like he has. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Gibson. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how retailers like Costco and Target are reacting to increasing inflation and fears of recession. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Jen Clayson is here to tell us what's on the show. Hey there, Jen. Hey, Rupa. Good morning and happy Monday. So we'll get all the big news today, of course, as we always do, from the extreme weather in California to a rundown of CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference this weekend. Trump uh, calling himself the candidate of retribution. Nikki Haley being booed at the conference, uh, Ron DeSantis skipping uh, the event altogether. Also today on the program, we'll talk about a problem in many parts of the country, the need for diapers. Diaper banks provide diapers to families in need, families who cannot afford to buy them. And the need is higher than ever, Rupa. It's I another issue. Yes, it's a it's a problem in the child care crisis for families who generally need to show up at daycare with a week's worth of diapers. Mm. And when you can't afford it and you can't provide those diapers, uh, what are you going to do? So we'll look at the crisis and some potential solutions. Also, a really interesting look at deforestation around the world and it's linked to pandemics. This all started, as you recall, uh, with Ebola in Uh West Africa, right, years ago. Disappearing landscapes mean humans are colliding with infected animals who are more stressed Mm -hmm. and then likely to be shedding dangerous virus on humans. So what does this mean for the next pandemic post-COVID? ProPublica has some really interesting reporting on this and we'll talk with them about that. That's really interesting in light of the new FBI disclosure that they think came COVID came from a a Chinese lab. Yes, yes, in lieu of that as well. Thanks, Jane. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at clarkliving.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, a fight is brewing over a new charter school in Worcester. There are questions about its financial ties and which students it will serve. And it's also prompting questions about how charter schools are approved in the state. From the newsroom, reporter Max Larkin joins us. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Should powerful people in government own stock in the companies they oversee? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. I'm David Brancaccio. This week we could see another bid to limit conflicts of interest, this time not focused on members of Congress. Wall Street Journal's reporting, Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri will introduce a bill to ban senior members of the executive branch from owning or trading individual stocks. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with some background. Yeah, this is the latest in a series of developments, David, as lawmakers, U.S. agencies all try to figure out how to tighten rules around stock trading for potential conflict of interest reasons. And that effort has gained momentum after the pandemic. A Wall Street Journal report last year said that there was a spike in stock trading among officials in U.S. agencies tasked with pandemic response in the early days. These are people who may have had privileged information, such as then-Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. The trades raised the question of whether officials were profiting from their positions because they had specific knowledge of what was to come from the government in terms of aid, support for companies. Uh, Members of Congress have faced scrutiny too, David, and so have Supreme Court justices. And what has come of all this scrutiny so far? 
Well, not much. Uh, several agencies are reportedly conducting internal investigations. Others may tighten ethics rules. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have proposed legislation to address stock trading both among members of Congress and officials in the federal government and to add new ethics rules for justices on the Supreme Court as well. You know, it's a bit of a strange bedfellow situation, David, because you have Senator Josh Hawley, for example, a conservative, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, a liberal, generally on the same side of this issue. And the basic outlines of how trading could be curtailed would be either to require officials and lawmakers to divest certain stock investments or to put them in a blind trust. All right, Marketplace's Nova Safo, thank you. We're coming off a big week of retailers reporting profits and sales for the previous quarter and between inflation and talk of a recession maybe later this year despite the very strong job market. Planning is a dicey proposition. Macy's, for instance, says it's doubling down on store brands. Costco and Target say customers are focusing on essentials. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has more. The more worried people are about their finances and the economy, the less loyal they are to their usual brands and stores. At the end of the day, consumers really look for pricing and value. Landon Luxemburg is a retail analyst at Third Bridge. He says this puts stores like Dollar Tree and Costco in a good position. Other big box stores are shifting their sales strategies, pushing private label products and changing inventory to focus more on necessities and less on discretionary items. They likely will not emphasize their electronics sections as much. But Jessica Ramirez, a retail analyst at Jane Hawley & Associates, says people still want to treat themselves. The treats are just smaller. Am I going to buy a new suit jacket or am I going to buy a lipstick? Target says beauty is one of its strongest performers right now. Because while a full mani-pedi could feel like a splurge, a bottle of nail polish might be doable. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. S&P futures are up a quarter of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up half a percent, just over a half an hour here before formal trading begins. Later this week, the guardian of interest rates in chief, Jerome Powell, shares his view of the economy and testimony to Congress. On Friday, it's the big labor market reports covering February. The survey of households yields the unemployment rate. A separate report draws on data from company payrolls where forecasters expect job gains to be much lower than the blockbuster January report. Unemployment is expected to hold steady at a very low 3.4%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Demand to live in smaller, outdoor-focused communities is through the roof, especially ones favored by wealthy people. With real estate prices hitting record highs, local workers are in a bind trying to afford a place to live. Today, we'll focus on the West. Here's Will Walkie of the Mountain West News Bureau. Brandon Whitesell vividly remembers visiting Jackson Hole, Wyoming for the first time in 2007. He was enamored with the national parks in the area like Yellowstone and the wildlife. We saw, you know, a hundred elk and then pronghorn and then moose. I mean, I just, just there, there's no place like that in the United States, really. Whitesell was hooked. He's a former real estate developer who was financially stable enough to retire young. In 2018, he moved to Jackson full time. Now he snowboards, mountain bikes, and explores Wyoming with his wife and son. So it really is this beautiful utopia. It really is. It's a bubble. 
in that bubble just keeps getting more expensive. Last year, the average single-family home price topped $5 million, almost double what it was in 2019. That's pricing out locals like Ariel Kazunas, who works for a nonprofit. She says there's new construction all over her neighborhood. A lot of homes are just getting straight up demolished um, to make room for bigger homes that are selling for a lot more than anyone I know can afford. Last year, out of nearly 200 single-family homes that sold in Jackson Hole, only two were under a million dollars. Kazunas says some friends, even doctors and lawyers, are moving away. She's thinking about it, too. It sits wrong that, like, just because I don't have millions of dollars, I shouldn't get to live where I want to live. And Jackson isn't alone. Lake Tahoe in California and Nevada and parts of Park City, Utah, also saw prices reach records last year. In Colorado Mountain Towns, a recent survey showed that 31% of long-term renters say they have severe difficulties finding a place to live. Dan Dockray is a realtor in Telluride and says the pandemic prompted wealthy people to go hunting for homes in the mountains. People were locked down and they kind of said, what am I doing with my life and these things? And they said, part of that is I want to prioritize lifestyle. Doc Ray was expecting fewer buyers last year because of things like rising interest rates. He was wrong. And now he expects prices to keep rising. I think we're going to see demand become stronger by summer as people realize we're either in a recession or we're not. In the meantime, towns are looking for new ways to keep their local workforce. That includes down payment assistance programs and allowing for denser neighborhoods. The question is, will that be enough when there's still so many wealthy people who want their own personal paradise in the mountains, no matter the cost? I'm Will Walkie for Marketplace. And you're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. May PM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Skies gradually grow cloudy today. It'll be in the low 40s. Keep in mind also that there will be some gusty winds. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight. It'll still be cloudy. Tomorrow, a mix of clouds and sun in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Donald Ryan's new novel is a love story about a family, but he also didn't want to shy away from life's darkness. Because life is so fragile, life is so short, you know, and it's so imperative that we seize the moment and try to enjoy this time we have on Earth with each other. The novel, The Queen of Dirt Island, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.